out of all the disciplines or all the the fields, architecture is is probably the slowest to address indigenous issues. So the reason why design is a really important step towards sovereignty is because for the last 150 years, indigenous people have been shoved down their throats, the environments that they're surrounded by, by their own, not their own will. And, and yet architecture has that incredible capacity to connect people to places. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. 360 Degree City is brought to you by the team at Intelligent Futures. We're a team of versatile urban problem solvers, and our aim is to figure out better ways of living together. I wanted to start this episode by acknowledging the land that I have the privilege to live and work on. We record and produce this podcast on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. The city of Calgary is situated on land where the Bow River meets the Elbow River, and the traditional Blackfoot name of this place is Mokinsis. The conventional professions of architecture and planning portray a modernist and colonial way of thinking. Just consider the concept of land ownership. Land is divided into parcels that can be bought and sold over and over. Land is seen as a commodity for transaction. We build our cities and buildings by drawing straight, hard lines with calculated angles. And after everything's mapped out on a piece of paper, construction occurs. This normalized way of working reflects a dominant Western worldview. But there are other ways to design buildings and create communities. And our Westernized forms of design, planning, and architecture almost always leave out the voices of Indigenous people. And today I wanted to talk to someone who teaches and practices Indigenous design and architecture. Uh, my name is David, or Dave, to people who have known me a while, uh, Fortan. Uh, so I'm a professor of architecture uh, in Sudbury, Ontario at Laurentian University. Um, I'm also the director of the school, and I've got a few other hats that I wear in terms of, uh, I'm also the associate director of the Mamwazing Indigenous Research Institute, um, and a practicing architect, so, and a dad, and a husband, and all those other things too. (laughs) Many hats, just one head. Yes. (laughs) In this episode, David and I talk about how the McEwen School of Architecture at Laurentian University combines Francophone, Indigenous, and Anglophone culture into architectural education, the factors that lead to Indigenous design, how the design process is important for sovereignty, the work David did to curate Unseated, a Canadian entry for the 2018 Venice Architecture Biennale, and what excites David about Indigenous design. This conversation was especially great for me as I got to catch up with an old friend. David and I first met all the way back in 1991 when we were teammates on the Saskatchewan 17 and under provincial basketball team. Our paths crossed again later at graduate school at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Environmental Design where Dave was taking architecture and I was studying urban planning. It was great to catch up with him and learn more about the exciting and important work that he's doing. With that, let's dive in. Could you describe your your path to uh, getting to Laurentian University? And then I want to uh, dig in with you a bit about um, the McEwen School of Architecture. Sure. So um, I was uh, born in, in the prairies, as you know. I was born in Calgary and raised in Saskatchewan and, uh, and Alberta. And uh, studied architect. Well, I did a bachelor degree in Saskatoon and then uh, I did a master's degree at uh, uh, University of Calgary. Where we hooked up again, yeah, yeah, and uh, and then uh, so uh, I worked in Calgary for a little while and decided to go back to academia. So the the short version is that I studied for a PhD in Scotland, uh, taught in the United States for five years, and then uh, the the path here sort of um, it's kind of it's career and personal in the sense that my wife and I were expecting our first baby. And uh, there was a calling back to Canada for lots of reasons that we won't get too political about, but um, definitely wanted to get back home. And so the timing was pretty good that I saw that somebody in Calgary had mentioned to me that um, they were they're advertising for a new, a new uh, school in, in Canada and Ontario. And there's not many teaching positions in architecture in Canada as there is. Mm-hmm. Right. There's there's 11 uh, 11 schools at the time. 
So uh, I looked at the ad and uh, and the first thing that I it jumped out at me is they'd mentioned in their description of the school that there were FNMI. FNMI stands for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. So this is kind of strangely prior to the word indigenous being used so ubiquitously, right? Mm-hmm. But FNMI uh, teachings and culture was going to be part of the program as an overall curriculum. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever come across that. And... Um, you know, this was appealing to me at lots of different levels because, I mean, I've, I've held my Métis card since I was a preteen, um, but it's not something I ever really explored professionally. Um, you know, I, my, my, my life as an architect was very distinct uh, from my, let's say, my, my heritage from my dad's side of the mm-hmm. family. So uh, when I saw that, I remember uh, phoning up Terrence Galvin, who was the founding director, and explaining uh, that that really interested me and that uh, I wanted to investigate what Métis architecture was or could be, and that's really what brought me here. The, the mandate of Laurentian, as I understand it, is it's got a tri-cultural mandate. Can you, can you describe your – so obviously that was part of the, the draw for you. So can you describe uh, what it's been like and, and what you're trying to – um, how, how that informs your work at the at the McEwen School of Architecture. Yeah, so that, again, for me, is I think it's fairly unique in Canada, and I think other schools are starting to do this. But um, Sudbury, um, I, I didn't know this before I came here, but over one-third of Sudburyans uh, identify as Francophone, uh, first and foremost. So we're pretty close to the Quebec border here. And uh, so there's a very strong uh, Franco-Ontarian population. And we also happen to be surrounded by, within 20 minutes, there's two different First Nations. um, And similar to northern Saskatchewan and and other cities, a very high population of Indigenous people around here. So the university probably, I want to say in probably the 80s or and certainly the early 90s where they started to solidify this idea of a tricultural mandate that would serve their communities based on their demographics. You know, and and it's uh, those demographics compared to some of the uh, bigger metropolitans, let's just say, that are much more multicultural. Um, A lot of Indigenous people living in Toronto as well, right? But the visibility Mm -hmm. is not as obvious. But in a a place like this, like I grew up in Prince Albert and, and I always consider Sudbury to be like a big... It's like a bigger version of PA, you know, culturally. It feels like it weather wise, um, you know, landscape, not so much. But um, so... Uh, it's a bit of a um, an experiment, I would say, uh, in, in architectural education that the, that this school landed here, and uh, for a couple of reasons. One, which is interesting, is that it's not in a major city; um, it's in a, right. a relatively small city, um, which is more common in the United States, like where I came from, Montana. You know, the college towns. Uh, can be mm-hmm. quite small with schools of architecture. Um, but in Canada, the schools of architecture are almost all in the urban centers. You know, um, After us, uh, Halifax would be the next smallest, I think. So um, oh, wow. the context is interesting in that way. So it's challenging because we're not around kind of a typical urban, let's say, urban design culture. Um, this is a fairly blue-collar town. It's a mining town. Um, the downtown has been sort of decimated by uh, some really poor planning over the years of, you know, things that happened to other cities. Um, we're at the big mall in suburbia and, and New Sudbury that developed around that. And then a lot of developments out towards the south of the city. Uh, and the other thing that's different about this place is... Um, uh, I, I don't want to call it cottage country because it's not cottages, but certainly there's 300 lakes within city limits. So there's like, you know, every second house, it seems, is a lakefront property. And there's a value system on kind of the waterfront acreage with the skidoo and the snowblower and mm-hmm. all, the, all the, the, the toys, right? So the context of the school is very different. And, um, and, I, and you know, and the, the founding director who developed the, the initial curriculum with others, um, I think it was really um, smart in, in trying to figure out how you teach architecture. How, what does, how is design different in that kind of a context? And not to make any assumptions yeah. that, you know, what's good in New York or Toronto necessarily just needs to translate and, and create a new urban language here, that it's a very different context. So, so that started. And then there was a, in related to the Indigenous content, there was a very early on community engagement session f- with fa- faculty members from the school and also the First Nations here asking about you know, architecture and they documented that it's available online <clears throat> and, you know one of the quotes that I, I pulled out of there that I, I think is interesting they've highlighted in the document says you know out of all the disciplines or all the the fields architecture is 
is probably the slowest to address indigenous issues. Um, and I think, you know, that that's uh, true. And so when it came to curriculum time and developing in that, um, one of the things that we did was um, really treat this not as a specialized topic, as you'll get in most architecture schools. It's not like an elective course in your graduate program where you can study indigenous people in architecture, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you may not. And most people will never get an indigenous professor. In the program and the way the McCune Architecture School is set up is that it's it's integrated in, I would say, roughly 80% of our courses. Some of them, they don't touch on Indigenous issues. Um, but, you know, we have my colleague, Aladia Smoke. Uh, she's Anishinaabe, but she teaches professional practice. Um, so mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't pigeonhole Indigenous people to only teach. You know, I teach lots of, lots of different things. Um, we're also the only school in the world, I keep saying, until somebody tells me otherwise, uh, that, <laughs> that we have paid um, Indigenous elders and culture, cultural teachers. So mm. we have uh, four of them, um, one Métis and three First Nation that work here during studio time. So they wander, they meet students, they talk about design, they teach various things throughout the program to faculty and students. Um, so, you know, and then the, the curriculum, we, we also, one of the things that I think was very beneficial was that the university was already so strong in its indigenous uh, education, let's say, that when we started the school, um, one of my colleagues up, up at the campus had said to me that there's a kind of a saying around here that is um, nothing about us without us. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's a, a really interesting one for designers, mm -hmm. um, which basically, you know, when I talk to colleagues about it and we, and we work on in the curriculum is that if you ever find yourself as a non-Indigenous person talking about wigwams or something culturally specific, um, you should be questioning whether you, you're the knowledge person to do that. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a negative thing. You just bring in the people that have the knowledge to share that and deliver that with you and make sure that you're, what you're saying is uh, accurate, you know. So... We're learning a lot as we go. We've had six years of the program. The, door, the school opened in 2013, and I, I would love to say that we've, we're nailing everything, but there's a lot of learning lessons when it comes to things like this because, you know, we're treading this ground between we're training architects to be professionals with a certain uh, re requirement from firms who hire them, and so there's mm -hmm. technical capacity, building code, everything and everyone else. But then you're also trying to layer in this kind of, let's say it's a, um, a value system or a way of thinking about sustainability, a, a, a way of being that is not conventional architecture. And so it's, it's mm -hmm. a very slow process. <laughs> We're just kind of starting. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm curious, the, 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 I mean, you just described the, the professional part of it, but what are, what are you seeing um, just as the impact on, on your students in terms of um, obviously they're, they're learning their craft to be a, a, an architect, but that kind of immersive uh, and intentional experience, what, what, what have you seen in terms of their, the impact on them as uh, people and citizens of Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's good. I mean, it's still early, right? We're, our first yeah, graduates will yeah. graduate this May, so we'll see. Okay. But, um, you know, what I have seen, and, uh, and I, I think what excites me is um, there's a couple of things I would point to. One, uh, we held an event last year at some point. We were working with the hospital on, uh, on an Indigenous uh, health center within the hospital, and so some of our students worked on that. And we started that off with a, a bit of a ceremony here down by the fireplace. So we smudged and uh, we had an elder here and, and you know, it was a, a little ceremony. And um, it amazed me that there were probably 10 uh, architecture students from different, er different years. And they were just so comfortable in that setting. And it dawned on me, like, you know, they all knew protocol on what smudging was. They all, mm -hmm. so there was a certain cultural literacy that had been translated to, to the students through osmosis of just kind of being around. And that's already a big win. Um, For sure. And then the other thing that's come up, and, uh, and I don't know, this wasn't, I would say this is not as intentional as the indigenous content, but, you know, uh, when you talk about indigeneity and it talks about, you know, who you are and it implies your heritage, your ethnicity, all those things, right? It's involved in that conversation, the kind of identity politics of the thing. Um, 
what's been a really interesting one is so like uh, I give lectures on on Métis uh, culture and architecture and uh, and numerous times and uh, other indigenous people share this we have like our um, African students will come up to us after or our, our our international students come and they'll talk about how it totally relates to things that they think from their home and it kind of sparks their interest in their own heritage and that their own mm-hmm. cultures are something to be not ignored in their thinking of themselves as designers, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. and you know, my, my colleague, Jake Chakasm, he's a, a James Bakery. Uh, he used to teach Indigenous precedents. And, and the first, um, one of the early lessons that he taught in the class is that indigeneity is not an exclusive conversation. It's not like, because we often hear Indigenous, non-Indigenous, right? The binary. But, you know, mm-hmm. I, what I liked about him is that he, he would challenge students right away to say, we're all Indigenous to somewhere. Do you know what is your indigeneity? What's your understanding of yourself? And mm-hmm. and I got to say that comes up quite frequently in our program where it's, the, ch- students are challenged to say, who are you? You know, we had an elder here a few years ago who kept on asking students in my grad studio, like they're struggling with this one assignment. He kept saying, well, before you even try to solve the problem, what grounds you as a person? That's what I want to mm-hmm. hear, right? Mm-hmm. And it's you got 22 year olds that nobody's ever challenged them in that way. Like, do you really know who you are? What is your value system? What are the principles that guide you on a day to day? And for myself as a faculty, I feel like this this environment has done that for me, too. Like, it really helps you understand, you know, what is it that you value? What, why, why, when we're in architectural critiques, and it still happens here, too, so I can't exclude us. But why are mm-hmm. we sitting and debating whether Mies van der Rohe's details and how beautiful they are and compared to... You know, you're, you're talking about all this stuff and you're like, it's totally disconnected and at some levels, you know, you can relate to it. But mm-hmm. architecture has been so navel-gazing uh, in itself um, in exclusion of its context for so long that it's, uh, it's kind of an awakening, you know. So those are the things I think that the students and faculty alike, we're all being kind of challenged because we got Francophone-speaking people, we got French and Indigenous and international, and it's a very, it's quite a mixing pot. Um, but the indigenous curriculum is, is asking those important questions, I think. What, what are some of the, the pieces? Because what, what I'm already getting from this is that talking about indigenous culture and indigenous values and indigenous design uh, is, is just embedded into the lifeblood of your program rather than, you know, here's, here's the, the, the compulsory course you need to take on it and you, and you take that. Um, what, what are some of the, the things, uh, I guess, in terms of both... Um, similarities and distinctions uh you mentioned this that sort of binary thing so i'll I'll go a bit there um between what people would think of regular normal design and what 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 informing factors are there to indigenous design that's that people should should really know about and start to to think about yeah i think um it's actually like I mean we've had a lot of conversation about this, and I think actually for many of us, even you know from from unseated, which I know we'll talk about later, um, mm-hmm. but even prior, like when this school was set up, there was a lot of these questions about indigenous design, and I think as time goes on, luckily we're we're I think collectively people are starting to understand these things a little bit clearer. So for for me, the way I I, I describe it is it, you, we think about we always have a lot of conversation about indigenous art, for instance. Um, so design right. the production of things, uh, particularly if they're expressive and they can express cultural content, uh, it's not that dissimilar to, to indigenous art. And so for Patrick Stewart, who's Niska from the West Coast, uh, him and many others are very adamant that it's not indigenous architecture or design unless an indigenous person is doing the, the designing. Right. So right. it's just like, you know, you, you can't come up with a Haida bag and draw it as a non-Haida and then sell it. And so that all those cultural appropriation levels apply there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of the so, so that's the, the biggest probably factor is who's the who's the author of the process. But when it comes down to, to community, um, you know, and we have these conversations, too, where it's like, well, what if what if Douglas Cardinal designed a Burger King? Does it make it an indigenous Burger King? Douglas Cardinal born in 1934, is a world-renowned indigenous architect. His style is characterized by organic forms that challenge engineering standards. Cardinal studied architecture at the University of British Columbia and the University of Texas School of Architecture. You'll hear more about Douglas later in this episode. Right, because what about Mm -hmm. that is indigenous? 
So they're, they're, they're those kind of difficult conversations. But so I think like the, the, the clearest or the most kind of um, pure version of indigenous design is where an indigenous person with a person with an indigenous worldview is working with an indigenous community and in that process um, seeking out the best way to express that community. Right. So right. that you're you're right. working. It's about the collective. It's about the social kind of I call I think of it more like the social act of design. Right. That it's not about right. a person designing something. It's about a group of people coming together around what they what they feel sort of solidifies who they are as a people and celebrates that and and, and serves them in, in the way they want it, which may or mm-hmm. may not align with. Let's say global design um, metrics for what's good design. Right, right, right. right. A lot of the mag- a lot of the magazines. We've had these conversations where where people look at you know when when Unseated started, people would say, well, I don't know, do any do those indigenous designers do any good work? Because like I don't see it published. You know, it's not in the. So so then we have to ask, well, by whose standards are you saying whether it's good or bad? And if a community yeah. gives a lot of community input and they take ownership of it, from the outside design community might look at it and say, well, that's really kind of tacky or it's too symbolic, it's too literal, it's too symbolic. It's, mm-hmm. But if it's a win for the community and strengthens their sense of place and sense of peoplehood, then it, it should be considered a win, right? So those are the yeah. factors. And then... I think the the other thing that that's really important, and, and I'll just add add to that, is that I think because you know, luckily, let's just say design in general, and you've been an advocate for this for for a long time, right? Just in terms of sustainable thinking, doing things mm. better, right? Like make just make sense for the planet and how we live. And yeah. I think the non-indigenous world is also doing great strides in that, right? Renewables and walkability and and all those other things and it's kind of like a I, I think of it like as a systems thinking approach to living and 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 so it, th- that's where it get big the overlaps get pretty close yeah and then what for me what distinguishes it is that the the place-based culture is what is really important and and it there are similarities but in terms of the 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 storytelling and the sacredness so the spirituality that's actually an important layer of that approach that's where it starts to dis- dissociate itself from kind of a non-indigenous yep. more let's just say you know depending on where you are in the world and that that applies around the world mm-hmm. but i i think that we're very secularized as a as a design um industry let's just say mm-hmm. um and, yeah. and whereas indigenous people aren't afraid to go there you know yeah right right <laughs> yeah and it's that that um raises something uh for me one of our most recent guests i was he's a professor at the university of amsterdam and he was talking about the impact um that instagram is having on cities and sort of creating this per it's merging into a pretty uniform design aesthetic that something like instagram is so you you might see the i think he called it millennial pink uh at a, at a cafe in tokyo or rio or calgary um and and it's it's almost absolutely devoid of the information of place and community values and the culture that, that you're talking about and, and really the authenticity um, of that place. So that's, that's um, uh, so it, what it does uh, just, I, I think even speaks to um, put more importance uh, to bringing that into the global design conversation, because if you get this sort of generic Generification. Uh, there's real lessons learned from um, cultures that really appreciate and aren't afraid to go there, as you say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so uh, I, I saw in a, an article recently that uh, you had said that the design process is a way towards sovereignty. Um, can you explain what that means and why that's uh, why that's important for indigenous communities? Well, I think, uh, you know, I just finished writing a chapter on this that uh, um, is in editing phase now on, des- on indigenous um, agency. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of a play on this, you know, that this kind of shift, let's say, over the last 20 years from uh, Indian agent. From the 1830s to the 1960s, Indian agents were representatives of the Canadian government on First Nations reserves. Indian agents enforced and administered rules set out in the Indian Act. First Nations people were seen as wards of the state and the Indian agents were responsible for enforcing oppressive and discriminatory policies. Right. Uh, right. From the Indian agency to indigenous agency, just by a flip mm-hmm. of those two words. Um, and I really believe that um, 
design for all of us is a really important sense of agency in the world and and um you know i i think like non-indigenous uh, you know everyone holistically we we are often removed from the products and the places around us so that's everything from our gadgets to um, our houses is that, you know, a vast majority of people nowadays can't really don't know how to fix the things around them. They don't really understand materially where they come from. We are sort mm -hmm. of in the, a blur of commoditized stuff, right? Yeah. Um, for indigenous people, like the design process was was very different. I mean, it, what we love in our school, we teach our students to, to do birch bark canoes. Um, we work with elders on that and the teachings that are involved in the making of a, of a canoe, which is uh, amazing exercise. And we just did one this year with a wigwam. A wigwam is a semi-permanent dome dwelling traditionally made by many nations. And, uh, and so uh, it's a bit of a roundaway back to your question, but... You know, I, I'm interested in this and, and I'm studying this. I can't say I know a lot about everything yet, but if you think about pre-colonial in North America, indigenous ways of design, whatever that, that is, mm -hmm. right? That the way you designed and the way you made things was so entwined with those stories uh, and understandings of the place. And it wasn't a person designing a new kick-ass canoe every month and who could make the best canoe. It was right. embedded in your knowledge systems, right, of what the mm -hmm. place was about, right? When... And, and that included like everything from the from the structures, right? So whether they be teepees or igloos or, or wigwams or whatever across the indigenous world. Um, so colonialism brought with it a different pattern of the relationship between what design meant, you know, the relationship. And, yeah. and, and I'm interested in this idea of drawing architecture, um, you know, so theorists like Robin Evans talk about how it was part of Western thinking that you you would basically draw the utopian idea. Uh, in two dimensions, right, geometrically perfected, um, and then you would build that reality after. But that's a very, so it's like you're drawing the future, right? Um, that's a very westernized way of thinking uh, related to making things. And so my, yeah. my critique goes to, you know, even to the residential schools. Residential schools were religious schools imposed by the Canadian government on First Nations people. These schools were designed to assimilate First Nations children into colonial, westernized culture. First Nations children were taken from their families and placed into these schools where they were stripped from their culture, oppressed, and abused. Residential schools have resulted in deep, intergenerational trauma for First Nations people across the country. It's important to note that many people think these schools as something far in the past, but the last residential school didn't close until 1996. Um, you know, the politicians may have had the ideas of assimilation, but the, f the, the people who drew the, the infrastructure for that to happen were the architects, uh, acting with no mm -hmm. personal agency. They were agents of the system of assimilation, mm -hmm. right? And from that moment on, you know, the mm -hmm. outline of ceremony or outlawing of ceremony, um, you know, even the building of traditional structures outlawed. I mean, teepees were allowed in, in context, right? But, um, you know, uh, a different relationship between buildings and people and design process. And from then on, it becomes a very paternalized relationship between buildings and indigenous people. You know, next it's like, oh no, you know, if you're Métis, your log house is not good enough, even though they were performing pretty well, or the teepees are savage, or so now we're gonna start supplying you housing because it's our responsibility as part of our treaty. And so then they similarly draw these very, you know, American suburban homes that have no relationship to the culture of the people, and then they just start replicating them. So the reason why design is a really important step towards sovereignty is because for the last 150 years, Indigenous people have been shoved down their throats, the environments that they're surrounded by, by their own, not their own will. And, and yet architecture has that incredible capacity to connect people to places, right? And, and, yeah. and to be in, in, even today, I mean, you know, sovereignty, we, we talk about this a lot because there's 18 registered architects in the country who are uh, Indigenous. That's 0.02%. So inevitably, non-Indigenous people are getting projects with communities. They arrive there, you know, like luckily we're getting more cultural literacy today, but a lot of architects will have never even been in an, an Indigenous community. And they arrive and within their two hours of consultation, they're expected to 
figure out a culture you know like the, I've seen this mm-hmm. a lot here it's like well can we meet with your elders for an hour and a half and, and hopefully we'll absorb everything we need to know for how to do the building it's like are you kidding me there's thousands of years of knowledge yeah. you want them to summarize in a different language to you so you can draw something cool you know mm-hmm. so there's a big disconnect still mm-hmm. um, so for me the sovereignty question it's it's a very slow process but of having the future that that I think excites a lot of people is young indigenous youth coming up what are your visions right how are you, and how are they grounded in the teachings of your ancestors how do you kind of re- reinvigorate your culture in, in your future mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and that's a very I think I think it's a very powerful um, part of of the let's say the reconciliation process uh, for lack of a better term right that that's I think mm-hmm. it's really important for indigenous people to to take that on Douglas Cardinal has said lots of time it's not technology that's bad it's who in, who's in charge of the technology yeah. and he said indigenous people should be the masters of the technology you know so mm-hmm. those are the steps I think towards gaining more sovereignty yeah yeah th- th- thank you I I hadn't um you know, there's other contexts where I've where I've thought about uh, built form and influence on behavior and culture and insights, and that is a really really powerful way of of describing that. Um, and, and just wondering, when you're talking about uh, uh, young Indigenous folks, um, is is that part of your uh, curriculum or mandate to connect with um, folks that are uh, you know, kids that are in school today, um, and and work with them and get their their insights insights and ideas. Yeah, we are we are trying, and uh, yeah. you know, we we have twelve self identified Indigenous people in our school, which is mm-hmm. higher than most other schools, all of them, I'm pretty sure. But we're still, we're, you know, we're, that's still uh, we got a lot of work to do there. We're we're, yeah. we're starting we're initiating a new um, outreach program into some of our northern communities in northern Ontario, uh, something like an access program where we're going to work with communities to get design as part of their options for their career paths, construction, okay. design, and those things. So uh, it's a slow process, though, but yeah, it's it's definitely part of our mandate. Mm-hmm. Great. Just last year, uh, I believe you were at the uh, Venice Biennale, and I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing that right, um, as part of the Canadian um, exhibit, uh, and it was called Unseated. Can you uh, describe what that was about and what your experience was like, uh, both um, putting that together with your colleagues and, and what the experience was like as it was in Venice. Yeah, so Unseated, uh, um, I can take the credit for initiating the conversation about Unseated. And it, it was, uh, it sort of originated out of a few different things. But um, I remember the one day that I was reading an article, um, uh, I can't remember what magazine it was on. It was an online magazine article, and they were talking about um, the Arctic. And uh, design in the Arctic. And uh, this is something that I'd been looking at a little bit previous. And um, anyways, one of the quotes in there was from a, another architect, uh, non-Indigenous, and it, and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, malicious or anything, but he was saying, um, there are so few Indigenous architects, um, so, you know, that you can't even count them, which was a counterintuitive s- statement. But uh, that was, that's what he said, you know, there's so few that you can't count them. And the Im- implication was that there's really no Indigenous architects. So that's why non-Indigenous people are designing stuff. And by this time, I was thinking, well, this is crazy. Obviously, people just don't know. Like, the design community is not aware of how many Indigenous architects there are and, and the mm-hmm. great work they're doing in their communities. And so I sat on it for a few days, and then uh, Venice Biennale kind of announcement came out, and so I just phoned a few people, and I said, I don't know, I think, I think it's time, right? Like, we don't mm-hmm. need... The last three Biennales previous involved some level of indigeneity in Canada's pavilion, um, but it, they were all led by non-Indigenous people. And I was guaranteed, I think, you know, part of my point was given the the post-TRC culture in Canada right now. TRC stands for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which officially launched in 2008. This commission intended to be a process that would help guide people through the discovery of difficult facts behind the residential school system. In 2015, alongside a report describing the history and legacy of Canada's residential school system, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released 94 calls to action. These calls urge all levels of government to work together to change programs and policies as a way to repair the harm done by residential schools. I almost, you could guarantee somebody was going to do something related to indigeneity. So mm-hmm. uh, we had a phone call and then we, I sent out a blanket email to the Indigenous Task Force, who uh, that's also a fairly new initiative. In 2016, the Royal Architecture Institute of Canada, or the RAKE, launched the Indigenous Task Force, 
which seeks to foster and promote indigenous design in Canada. And unanimously people got really excited about it and it really, I didn't even know if it was really going to still fly or not until like the second person that phoned in was Douglas Cardinal and said, we need to do this. And, uh, and he said he would, he would be the presenter. And so when, as soon as Douglas was on board and everybody was excited, we said, we got to do this. So uh, it was really exciting. Um, we, um, we brought in Gerald McMaster, who's a Plains Cree uh, art curator. He's a bit of a legend in the art world as well. So bringing kind of Douglas and him together as, was a powerhouse team. And then we had uh, 18, well, Douglas and I, plus 16 uh, Indigenous architects from both the United States, four of them from the U.S. and Canada. And, and one of our provocations is we, although we were Canada's official entry, we called ourselves uh, the Turtle Island Pavilion. Turtle Island is a name for North America used by many Indigenous people. And sort of kind of to talk about that the boundaries between the two countries don't mean anything to indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, so we, uh, we had a long design process. And what was really interesting was um, we would do these online uh, forums like we're doing right now, right, where we would have eight people in, in little boxes like the Brady Bunch. And, <laughs> and we would be uh, debating about what, archite- what indigenous architecture is and what, what is it. You know, what is, it, what is it meant to your career? What does it mean to you as a person? And those conversations would get quite personal because a lot of these people have been practicing for 20 years and nobody had ever asked them, you know, some of these questions. And, and yet it was an all indigenous conversation. And, and so I think actually the process before the opening of the exhibit was as meaningful for me personally to those conversations. Um, and yeah. that, that hasn't even been documented or shared really. But out of that came the four themes of the exhibit, which were uh, sovereignty, um, uh, indigeneity, colonize, uh, colonize, colonization, and uh, uh, what's the other one? Resilience. Uh, so we kind of developed these themes and then Douglas's office really kind of Douglas himself really took that on to design the exhibit itself. And mm-hmm. then and then what really came out of it is we had a lot of conversations about, well, tectonically, what, what should we make? What We start off quite radical in that we thought, well, maybe indigenous people should do something uber sustainable. Like, you know, we arrive there, we, we take down material from the forest, we build something temporary and then we put it back to the forest and we leave with a zero carbon footprint. You know, we, we had those conversations and then Douglas sort of said, he said that it's, we don't want to be cliche. We want to go and show that indigenous people uh, are high tech and we do a lot of other stuff. So the exhibit kind of uh, evolved and, and it evolved basically into a, uh, all audiovisual projection uh, and, uh, you know, 10 foot screens. And it really just allowed each architect uh, to walk into the space uh, in real life or is sort of life size and talk and let their voices kind of share who they are as an architect and what they think about design and so it would that really was what it was it was to celebrate their work um it also sort of um as as curator team very earlier on we decided that you know you go through the biennale and there's all these great models and installations and it's very tactile and experiential in a, in a kind of physical way and we thought you know much like what I was saying earlier, that indigenous architecture is less about the object. You know, it's indigenous people never made tiny little models of things before they built their thing, right? They didn't fetishize about the object and make it look super cool before they just did it. And so we thought, well, our, our, I think we all agreed that indigenous architecture is about the people and the land and the storytelling and the voices and the, the music and everything else that goes along with that. And so we, uh, uh, we wanted that, you know, we didn't put any models and we allowed the exhibit to be about storytelling. Um, and that was really the basis for it. Mm. And, and how, uh, how was it received and what kind of uh, feedback and conversations did you have as, as part of that? Uh, you know, overall, I think people were really interested. Um, you know, we had a few conversations that I was quite shocked by, I guess, that um, a few people stopped by from, from European countries like France, particularly is the one I'm remembering. And they said that they felt so ashamed that they didn't realize indigenous people still were um, alive and functioning in North America. You know, they just had assumed that the cultures had faded. And so for a lot of European, which is kind of one of the premise for why we wanted to do this exhibit, um, I think it really opened some eyes and questioned people uh, from outside of North America and some, some North Americans as well 
uh, who were being exposed to things that they just had never really thought of before. Like indigeneity and architecture has not been a conversation, certainly in Canada, beyond Douglas Cardinal. You know, right. Douglas has been the sole <laughs> point in the public eye mm-hmm. on this one so um, overall reception was very good I think there was quite a lot of confusion too though like I, I think people walk through it's quite a it's a very intense um, the, the images are, are intense and so you, you at points in there you get quite vertigo and I think people looking for the takeaways that you would normally go to an architecture exhibit you know you're often looking for takeaways of what can I bring back and put in my sketchbook that's going to make me design something cool next time? I think there were less takeaways in that way. There was nothing um, easy to pull out of that. So I think that could have been perceived as quite confusing. But in some ways, I, I was quite happy with that because I think that is also part of the message that this is indigenous culture and, and architecture shouldn't be thought of as a style or something that you can extract yeah, right. and easily get, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the, 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 the architecture, the actual, whatever the built design object is, it's, it's embedded in all these things that you've been talking about. And so you can't uh, kind of distinguish, um, distinguish the object from the, 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 this broad, rich context that you've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so what's uh, just one more second last question uh, for you? What um, what are some of the the, the changes you're seeing uh, in the world of design in indigenous communities? We've we've been talking about kind of current state and historical. What are some of the things that you're most excited about um, moving forward in your own practice and your in your teaching? Well, I think what we're we're seeing is uh, a very slow emergence of. Um, what I guess could be described as a contemporary indigenous approach to design, um, you know, that's going to escape some of the things that, that we've seen of, you know, the the, the kind of, um, I don't want to crit- critique it too much, but like, you know, Douglas Cardinal worked with another firm and the other firm uh, really wanted to do a big glass teepee at the First Nations <laughs> Uh, university in mm. regina for instance right right and uh he's told me that that's the side of the building he likes the least um, um mm. so some of those cliche f- uh interpretations of architecture i think the, there's a maturity maturing process starting to happen and uh he did a really great project the cree cultural institute um is really great um two row architects are doing some really beautiful um contemporary indigenous work alfred waugh uh, on the west coast is just doing exceptional work and so we're, we're, I think what excites me the most is that these architects are getting recognition for their work and they're also starting to, um, uh, they're, they're really playing roles of role models, right? That, that mm. you know, the, and, and through that process, I guess maybe connectivity through internet and everything else, education, that communities are starting to see the value um, uh, of design again. And I think the expectations are starting to, the bar is definitely coming up, right? Every every year, mm, right. amongst um, Indigenous people, to start to question um, and 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 demand better than what they've been given, and that's pretty exciting. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, okay, so last uh, last question that we ask everyone that we chat with: uh, Can you tell me about a city that you love and why you love it? Yeah, that's the that's the one that always stump people. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because I think all of many of us who've traveled around have been to so many great places, and they're all so individual. But I, I, I think if I had to pick one today, I've always really loved Rio, and um, and I think you know we. I'll relate it back to a few years ago. I took a studio to New York City from Montana, and uh, the Bernard Schumi was um, in this roundtable discussion of architecture in New York and what it should be, and all these other things, and. I found what he said was really interesting is that uh, he found he felt that when he moved to to Manhattan in the 70s, that the city was full of um, uncertainties, um, that uh, there was a whole excitement to being in the city back then that was embodied a level of um, unpredictability. Right. Like whether that even be uh, borderline danger. Right. Like there was there were parts of the city still that that there were thresholds you could cross into neighborhoods and not know if you should be there, not know if you're welcome. And 
um, and then areas where there were safer zones and there was kind of pockets of interest and all these other things. And his comment at the time was that he finds that, you know, it's um, Rem Kuhas, you know, I think also would define this as junk space, right? That mm. there's just kind of a similarity, almost what you were describing earlier about the the Instagram world, right? That New York has kind of in his mind, I mean, I still like the city, but lost a lot of that unpredictability that the city's actually become so predictable that it's it's no longer a kind of interesting or invigorating place to be mm. um and i find my experiences in rio is i would be really shocked if that level of predictability could ever establish itself <laughs> in a place like that and you know I, I like it because there's parts of the city that are comfortable um that are are nice it's got beaches it's got you know just geographically the mountains the way they kind of corral the city and you kind of move through tunnels and so it's just a constant exploration and then i think the social layer of the the i don't know i mean in my phd work and, and a lot of my research i've interested in in the idea of capitalism and its impacts in sort of creating that universe of the borg right that mm. It's just a, a unified thing, and I and I and I like cities where there is a political, um, I'll say, a tension. And maybe now that tension is, you know, I haven't been there for a number of years, and I get the sense maybe that t tension isn't as productive as it as it was when I was there. But I feel like I don't know. I just feel like it, it's important for us to live in cities that challenge us um, to think about our social systems to our political systems and it's a great case study from the favelas to the to the high rises to everything in between on how people live and, and interact together and and that it's not always you know i don't know if, you, if you've been to brasilia which is also such an interesting place but having have, having taken students to the two of them right it was like <laughs> i think it was like it was like a phd of research into cities just in that 24-hour flight difference just the, con just just the, the contrasts. contrasts yeah like yeah. we kind of ate dinner in rio with music and the smells and the energy and the streets packed right and then the next afternoon we were landing into this absolutely pedestrian killer environment so spread out and and it's so quiet there you know it felt your senses were almost like um, overloaded because the cars were almost seemed futuristic because they were so quiet because you know you yeah. in contrast right it's like everything was just hovering around and and so I don't know I think like for me that's that's the risk right and how the work you're doing and the work that architects do is like how do you preserve that level of like humanity right like the mm -hmm. all all different sides of humanity that keep us alive and interested and excited you know. Mm -hmm. Well, Dave, in, in addition to our now very long history and our past, just keep overlapping in things. When we did the uh, our, this question for our team, Rio was the place that I came up with as well. So. Ah, there we go. <laughs> so next one of these we're going to have to do down in Rio. This conversation with David has been one of my favorites on the podcast to date. His insights framed a lot of issues I've been thinking about in new ways and really highlights that my learning journey about Indigenous issues continues as a human being, as a citizen of Canada, and as a professional who's trying to create better places for all people. David's doing incredibly important work and I'm proud to call him my friend. If you want to learn more about Indigenous architecture and design, David recommended three books for us and we put links to them in our show notes on the website. The first book is Our Voices, Indigeneity and Architecture. The second book is The Handbook of Contemporary Indigenous Architecture. And the third book is New Architecture on Indigenous Lands. We're going to take a break for a couple of weeks in releasing the podcast as we meet with new guests and get to work in some of the communities on projects we're working on right now. Stay tuned for a new episode in mid-April. Earlier, you heard a song that was used during the unseated exhibit and we'll end with another song from the exhibit. A big thanks to Adrian Feynman from Douglas Cardinal's office for sharing those with us.